This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I'm your host, Steve Anderson, and today our guest is Steve Tajanian. Steve is the founder of Elevation Project, which collaborates with elite organizations, communities, and institutions to build high-performance teams and systems. Steve has prepared triathletes for the Kona Ironman, boxers for world title fights, and the U.S. men's soccer team for the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. He was the first full-time American performance specialist in the English Premier Soccer League, leading the sports science efforts of Everton Football Club, facing teams like Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, Arsenal, and Chelsea. Steve is an expert physical therapist, sports scientist, movement specialist, and director of high performance. He supported Matt Fitzpatrick, uh, Fitzpatrick for the 2023 PGA Championship, and U.S. Open. Beyond sport, Steve has coached executive vice presidents at Stanley 1913, performance directors at the Phoenix Suns. He's helped the Colorado Rapids and developed organization for developing organizational identity and has given keynote speeches on collaboration at Fuel50 and WebPT. Steve has an amazing uh, resume as a physical therapist. Um, he's worked with some of the uh, most elite, highest uh, performing athletes on the planet. Uh, he's lived in Europe for five years doing that. He's back in the U.S. now doing his own thing, but just has a wealth of knowledge on how to get peak performance out of not only athletes, but now also helping uh, business executives in his coaching services. Uh, Steve is just a wealth of knowledge. Really enjoyed talking with him today. So let's just sit back, um, enjoy a great discussion with somebody who had vast experience in the uh, performance world and physical therapy and now in the business world as well. So here we go with the discussion with Steve. Steve, welcome to the program. It's great to have you on today. No, it is. Likewise, Steve. Thank you for having me, man. You're you're my pleasure. Let's just start a little bit with uh, just lay down some context here. So tell us a little bit about uh, uh, where you grew up, uh, how you got interested in physical therapy, where you went to school, and and kind of where you're at now. So just give us a little uh, summary rundown. Sure. I'm a Southern California kid. I grew up uh, in, in the suburbs of L.A. around Pasadena. And just really started to gravitate towards movement as a pretty young kid. I um, the, the earliest memory I have of really just being fascinated with movement was uh, the 84 Olympics. My, my parents just said that I was glued to the TV. Uh, the things that I remember were, you know, watching Carl Lewis in, in that 84 Olympics. Um, oddly enough, I was... I didn't have a volleyball background, but she said that my mom said I just would not miss a single U.S. men's volleyball game, and, and that was with Steve Timmons and and Karch Karai back in, in, in on that team. Yeah, um, and it was such a dynamic basketball team with so many uh, players that ended up really going on and having amazing careers. And then uh, you know just 
the she said I really really enjoyed uh, gymnastics and that was the year Mary Lou Retton really uh, hit the scene and that was her coup de gras Olympics and and that that's where it, my earliest memories anyway of just really being fascinated by movement um, I was an athletic kid always kind of couldn't really pick a sport if it was something that related to being outside and competing I was doing it and that kind of took me into college days and 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 I it just made sense for me to be in and around something that was movement based I had my injuries I had my physical therapy I don't I don't have a you know fairly typical story of a, a lot of athletes who uh, you know grew a love for physical therapy through some sort of pathway of, of injury in their in their path I had some stuff that I definitely dealt with but I think it was more just a general fascination uh, with the human body and the way it moved and when I kind of, uh, you know, a friend said, you know, you might want to take a look at this field called physical therapy. Uh, I interned in it and it really did, you know, some, some lights went off in my head. I really did enjoy it. And that's kind of how it gravitated and went to Long Beach state for my undergrad in Southern California and then did my master's degree in physical therapy and uh, at Western university of health sciences in Pomona. Uh, and then started my career in 2002. Uh, you know, I, young fresh enthusiastic physical therapist <laughs> i entered into the they entered into the real world in 2002 so uh you know when i look at your resume and what you've done and you've worked with these you know high performance athletes and you know um world-class soccer teams and all that you know it kind of seems like a dream job for a pt you know and when pts come out uh, you know many of them have that kind of dream but very few actually do it so how do you attribute, um, you know, where you started getting to where you're at? Uh, it's just, it's, it's a pretty impressive story. Yeah. I, I, you know, a lot of folks will start off with, you know, just being lucky and being at the right place at the right time. I wouldn't say that's not the case for this, but, uh, uh, as I, as I say with a lot of folks that I work with, um, you have to maximize your opportunities. And I would say that I probably was, pretty laser focused and had an awareness of how privileged of an opportunity I did get at such a young age. When I came out of school, my first job as a physical therapist was in a facility working for a guy named Jim Liston, who at the time was the head fitness coach for the LA galaxy. And with like in that facility, I was just exposed to so much. I was exposed to general population, I was exposed to athletes, I was exposed to kids, I was exposed to adults, and the athletic uh, spectrum went all the way from youth amateur all the way to professional athletes, and and it happened in a very, very quick period of time. My third day on the job, uh, you know, I, Oscar De La Hoya was in the clinic yeah, training for the Fernando Vargas fight. I, I just had this incredible uh, opportunity to be in a place like that. So that was the right place, right time aspect of this. But like I said, there's more to it. And I, and I remember being young thinking, uh, you know, not to, not to steal a line from, from Hamilton, but I was, I was not gonna, I was not gonna miss this shot. You know what I mean? I was going to make sure that I, I definitely was able to follow through on this and, and, uh, and not take it, you know, not take it for granted. And, and that really was the start of it. I ended up having opportunities, you know, I gravitated towards strength and conditioning and performance coaching pretty early as a physical therapist and, and Jim recognized that. And so I would, you know, I would help him out in with off season programming with the galaxy. Uh, you could even say that I somewhat was an assistant to him, you know, spending some mornings at the Rose bowl and, and having the opportunity to be pitch side 
with with the with that LA Galaxy team. And then, you know, I'd come back to the clinic around two o'clock in the afternoon. I just train athletes all the way until I couldn't hold my eyes open anymore. And that was you know, what I did for, you know, a couple of years before you know, having some opportunities to run my own practice down in San Diego. And and then after that, the head coach that was in LA at the time, Ziggy Schmidt, ended up moving to Columbus to take the head coaching role with the Columbus crew. And Jim couldn't do it. Jim couldn't, uh, you know, move and leave the company. And he recommended that I take the role. So that, again, just having that opportunity where people trusted you and they're, they're putting some faith in you by putting you forward is, is something that I don't take for granted. And then uh, that was a great three years I had with Ziggy and Columbus my first time around. We won MLS Cup in 2008, and it was just a privilege, uh, you know, God rest him, to to work with him because he was a father figure to me. What a great leader and a perfect opportunity for me as a young head fitness coach and, and um, you know, head of medical to really kind of have the opportunity to be under somebody like him. And we spent a couple of preseasons in England, and we used Everton's training ground as our as our kind of headquarters as we trained in the preseason for a week or two but we did it two years in a row and i got to know those guys at everton football club pretty well <laughs> and yeah. exos exos had signed a contract with everton at the time and then the original coach that filled that role ended up moving on and they needed somebody to fulfill the last year and a half of the contract they had and some friends of mine that were exos based uh, you know, put me forward. And here I am again, like in a great spot with an opportunity to do a great thing. And and we went abroad in 2009 and I had a, uh, an amazing five years there um, in, in England in the Premier League with the four years with David Moyes and one year with Roberto Martinez in, in a super, um, you know, high level, high intensity environment. Just the, everything felt just more urgent uh, in, in England. And I got a feel for, uh, real pressure, you know, a different type of pressure than I'd ever felt in my career. <laughs> and that, that gave me a lot. I mean, it was a tremendous experience where I, yeah, I did some things. Well, I made some mistakes that I learned from, and I probably came out of there, uh, with exponential growth, I would say in terms of just the global, uh, skill sets that are needed to be in high performance and to lead high performance I came out of there with probably a, a steep learning curve and a, a huge acceleration in my own maturation as, as a coach and a leader. And then came back to, <laughs> to Columbus again, not really because we wanted to go back to the club, to the Columbus group, but there's new ownership, new head coach. And I got to meet Greg Berhalter for the first time. And I would say that that very first meeting, it was pretty clear we would be a really, really great fit. Um, it was supposed to be a short conversation it ended up being, you know, two, two hours, two and a half hours that continued over the, the coming weeks. And then I ended up, you know, we decided to stay in Columbus when we came back to the U S but what a journey that became. Uh, I almost, you know, just short of a decade working with, with Greg Berhalter, not just with the Columbus crew again, but then moving on with him to the, to the national team and culminating with, you know, the bow tie of, of what I consider the the bucket list of things that I wanted to accomplish as a performance director, you know, finishing with the the World Cup in Qatar this past December in 2022 was was where it kind of became uh, a, a nice point for me to transition. The fatigue of being in professional sport is is real, and the uh, the way it affects you, the way it affects your family is 
that's not just a story to you know to put in a great book or to write a great article about. It's real, and, and your family suffers for quite a bit of time. The sacrifice they make is substantial, and you yourself go through a tremendous amount of physical and mental health um, decline in in when you're just dealing with the onslaught of pressure. And it was time for to transition to a new passion, a new purpose, and. Uh, that's where I found myself in 2023. Was just trying to use everything I had learned over the t- over the, that period of time of you know 20 plus years in in high performance sport and trying to apply it towards anyone that's seeking high performance. You know, and that's kind of been the vision of the Elevation Project that I started in in 2023 was to just to engage with uh, with anyone that was seeking and just to be a servant to those seeking high performance. Now, are you still in Columbus or? Have you yeah, 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 I was okay. able to. That was another tremendous blessing. When we came back from the UK, uh, there there was a point there where there was a possibility of having to transition to Chicago when I took the national team job. But by the grace of those in power, I was able to to stay in Columbus, which was you know, which is a huge blessing for the family. Yeah, that's well. There's so many things in your story that <clears throat> that come to mind, but but you know, this is a a podcast on leadership, and I think that what mm-hmm. you described early is. Uh, uh, you had people willing to sponsor you, and, and that's such a big thing, you know, that, uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, when somebody recommends you for a high-level job like you described, I mean, they got to believe in you. They Their their reputation is, is on the line just just as much as yours is. So the fact that you had Absolutely. people willing to do that a couple different times uh, made a huge difference, but I'm sure you had to earn that. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, through hard work and being present and, and just being, you know, hanging around and soaking up all you can. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think there's a, there's a certain amount of uh, risk that people will, will take on you when you exhibit a, an authentic selflessness. And I definitely was, uh, was brought up to really put myself last in and in sport, I was, I'll use the word lucky, I don't love it, but I was lucky enough to be around leaders who insisted that environments were always player-centric environments. And if it just fit perfect with my upbringing, because now there was just another thing for me to focus my attention on, to put first. And I think that's why I was given grace when I did make mistakes. When I did make mistakes, excuse me, I think there was always the understanding of my intention. And if you were to take and combine, you know, selflessness with great intention, like people will take a risk on you. You know, they'll, they'll definitely choose to mentor you through a mistake rather than punish you for a mistake. And I do think I was, I benefited from that quite a bit. Now my time at Everton, I never had anything longer than a one-year contract. It was always one year at a time. And I, I think that experience, although it frustrated me at times, it really did focus me on the things that mattered. If I, if I do my job at a really high level, nothing else matters. And in that, I was always in a position where I knew that I needed to put myself in this, in this place where it was evident that all I cared about was the club, all I cared about was the players. And if you do that, and you put your efforts and you maximize your efforts, you'll get rewarded for it. And I think that's probably something that I benefited from over the years. Yeah. And I, I mean, it's, it's a great lesson. It's, 
you're doing things for the right reasons. You understand your why. Mm-hmm. You're you're um, you're not going into it, you know, expecting you know a certain thing in return. You're just you know giving away your time and letting things happen. So uh, mm-hmm. that's amazing. So explain to us a little bit about what you did in that position in England. Um, for those of us that maybe aren't around a, a team like that, what was your actual role and what what did you do on the day to day? So at that point, I had really focused a lot of my attention and expertise in that area of performance coaching and sports science. Technology had really invaded professional sport when I when I made my way to the UK. It was the beginning of the GPS era and the the emphasis on tracking and player monitoring was um, just about to explode. And I was really fortunate to be in and around a club where we were, you know, we were allocating resources towards experimenting with this, these different technologies. And that gave me the opportunity to really develop as a data scientist, as a sports scientist. And then really my application as a physical therapist has always been very function first, very movement based. Um, I'm a Gary Gray mentor. And I think that's a lot of the influence on what really, you know, led me to be the type of strength coach and performance coach um, that I became. And at that time, that was something uh, that that the head coach, David Moyes, really wanted. He wanted an American fitness coach. He wanted an American performance coach. So it was really about getting players fit, getting players strong, but then understanding how to quantify what fitness looks like, how to quantify readiness. How do you not only put yourself in a position where you know what the target is, but you know whether you hit it or whether you missed it. And then at the same time, you also have an ability to measure the way the player is adapted to it, right? Did it benefit them as a very functional overreach? Did we gain today in a way where we push them to the right point where we know after adaptations, we're going to get a fitter, stronger player, or did we push them beyond that point? where the threshold was overreached and we're going to jeopardize whether we can really accomplish freshness by the time, you know, we get to kickoff. Those were things that were very much my responsibility at that club and really getting a grip of how to create a holistic, comprehensive way of training, monitoring, reassessing, refining the whole performance, you know, pathway for each player. And then the the unique part of being a physical therapist was that I pretty quickly, um, in addition to my sports science roles, became kind of the director of return to play or or end-stage rehab. And I was probably trusted to take players sooner than a lot of strength coaches would be uh, in that progression uh, because I had my background as a physical therapist. And that followed me through my career, really, Steve. I, I think I was fortunate uh, to gain the roles that I gained, but I think I separated myself from, from the rest of the candidates because I was a physical therapist as well as well. So that, that was an additional role that I had there. And and over time I was able to develop people that I was managing as well. So the role became something, uh, something of a department that I could start to create for myself. And we really started to, you know, bring in good people and create great programs that was geared towards first and foremost, just, creating great resiliency. And then if for 
uh, the unfortunate reasons that somebody did sustain an injury and needed this return to play process. You know, we were in a position to really create great processes that, in our minds, were able to, uh, you know, fulfill the goal of returning a player stronger and fitter than they were before they got injured. And that, that's kind of the role that I had there. And so you would actually uh, not only uh, uh, condition and, and train and, and go for the, the fitness levels, things like that, you would also treat injuries if, if they did occur and get them back on, on, the, on the pitch? Not the acute and subacute stages, but definitely as they started to get to the point where field-based training was a part of their rehab, when they got to a point where uh, you know, tissue healing wasn't necessarily the goal anymore, it was more now loading. And really trying to assess, can we now start to take a look at movement-based loading and movement-based rehab with the eye of uh, creating the opportunity for the player to be able to execute high-speed, soccer-specific movements? Uh, that's where we were able to start transitioning to them me a little bit sooner, and that was a great part of it. You know, and that's addition to you know to really handling a lot of on-field responsibilities with the whole team, running warm-ups running conditioning, uh, just collaborating with the coaching staff to create, you know, a perfect training day that maintains fitness levels we had and then allowed us to, when the opportunity arose, to, to really gain marginal gains in fitness as we worked our way through the season. So talk a little bit about that pressure that you said you felt for those five years, the intense pressure. Was it pressure related to fear of one of your players getting injured, or are you pushing them too far, or is it pressure that the team does well? Explain to us a little bit about that pressure you described earlier. It's definitely multifaceted. Uh, not to not to oversimplify this, but in the United States, when when I was in my you know my when I took my first role in two thousand seven with with the Columbus Crew, um, there was less pressure. Uh, because, you know, the soccer really hadn't grown in the United States yet. It was growing, but there wasn't a lot of eyes on us in Columbus. It wasn't a huge market. We weren't LA, we weren't New York. And as we had ups and downs, especially during times when we had bad form and, and we missed the playoffs in 2007 and it wasn't a great year, but there, you know, you felt a little bit of pressure that you might be losing your job, but I, I it wasn't overly oppressive and, what I found when I got to England was everything mattered. Everything mattered to the fans. Everything mattered to the club. Everything mattered to the players. And the, sh the average shelf life of a head coach my first three years in the Premier League was three months. Oh, wow. That's brutal. Yeah. That's brutal. And I remember it distinctly. And it changed slightly over the five years, shifting towards a little bit longer tenure. But it was, it was very short. And that's the type of pressure that, you know, it does trickle all the way down to us. You know, England also, um, my experience there really, really gave me my first understanding of what, what can happen in a blame culture. It was, it was interesting that I, that I did deal with that a little bit in that because there was so much pressure because there was so much at stake, there really was at times an emphasis on, you know, we got to, we got to pin this on somebody. We got to find out whose fault this was. And a lot of people are like, Hey, this is the reason why it's not my fault. 
and I, I, I didn't love it. I knew that it didn't really create a safe, trusting environment. And as I started to really experience that viscerally, I knew that I would do everything I could when I had the opportunity to really run my own high performance department to make sure that that didn't exist in any, in any, you know, environment or organization that I ever led or that I ever consulted with, I would always have my, my eyes and my ears open for that. And that did exist in the first couple of years that I was at Everton. And then there's, you know, I, I got to work with a colleague of mine that I'm still great friends with, Danny Donaghy, who, who really took over the department, the, the player health and performance department. And he got rid of that very, very quickly. We became a unit. We became a single unified department where a lot of the walls and silos were, were knocked down. And, you know, we worked together like a true team at that point. And, and it really gave me another really obvious understanding of what it looks like when you have a group of highly skilled specialists all working together to solve one problem, which is player health and performance. It, it was, it was fascinating, but I would, I would say I took from that experience that pressure can change human behavior in an unpredictable way. And if you're not paying attention as a leader, you won't even see it happening under your, under your watch. And those are, those are things that I saw taking place that weren't being addressed. And I saw how it eroded the environment and I saw how difficult it made it for us to really have a high performance environment. Yeah. Interesting. And I can imagine that the hours that you put in, um, you know, on the job, so to speak, in, in that situation were probably, uh, really long and hard. Yeah. At that point, I think we were pretty, we were used to it. Uh, you know, the, my family knew their long days and that's the sacrifice that we were talking about earlier. Um, and sometimes it has to do with the amount of games that are played in England as well. You know, we would, we, we spent a lot of time on the road and, um, and then even if we were home, um, I'm, I leave the house when it's dark. I, I return when the, when it's dark. And that's just a, that's something you accept. I think early on that that's going to be your life um in in this particular environment and it was no different for us i think over time you you have to evaluate and have really good communication with your family how's everybody doing you know i don't think i did a great job of that early in my career i started to realize it a little bit too late i think and um you can only make it in this business if you have incredibly understanding and a family that is willing to make sacrifices and, uh, you know, I was lucky. I was definitely lucky to have that. And you were, you were the first full-time American performance coach in that English Premier League. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a couple that had had some, um, there were a couple that had opportunities that weren't full-time or they weren't there the whole year. And I was, I was fortunate to be, um, to be in that position, right time, right place. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, when you look at the, the differences, um, you know, in, in, in the soccer world, you know, from the U.S. to, to Europe. Um, what are the major differences when you're working with a team um, other than, um, you know, it's a newer sport in the U.S., obviously. it's It's been around forever in, in, in Europe. But what, what do you feel like are the major differences from your perspective, uh, from a leadership perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think the... 
it's it's definitely an environment where the the power shifts towards players for sure. I think I I was definitely taken back at first uh, when I when I got to Europe. That in in Columbus, I really had the benefit of of a very typical mentality, which is you know if you were a good person, you worked hard, you could pretty much lean on the old you know do as I say, because I say type thing. And, and, and I had a good group in Columbus my first time around that was willing to do whatever it took. And they trusted me when I got to Europe, that was not the case. Um, you know, there, it gave me the, the opportunity to learn how to communicate how and why you can be better. And we, I had to talk through, why you need to be in the gym. It was a different environment. They, a lot of European players, I should say this, a lot of players that play for European clubs come from all over the world with lots of different experiences on what strength and conditioning is good and bad. And, and it was a sales pitch to get, to get players into the gym, to get them to buy in. And that's just the reality of, I think, the the you know human nature what i what i had in columbus was not reality that was that was not the majority what i learned when i was in the uk is people will buy in if they know why and i i follow that as a leader now yeah, you know we're absolutely. not given we don't lead because our title says we're a director we lead because the people on our team give us permission to lead them and i, I learned that with players in europe i'm in a coaching position but they don't just have to follow me blindly. I have to do the things that it takes for them to give me permission to coach them. And that's a reality. And, and some young coaches miss that. And I had to do that in, in Europe. No, there was a big difference there. And a lot of it was breaking it down to simple steps and saying, listen, do you agree that you would be a better player if I made you a better mover? And they said, of course. I said, okay. Now, let's say if I make you move better, wouldn't you say that it would benefit you if I also allowed you to move better and move faster? Uh, yeah, of course. I said, all right, wouldn't you also say that I could make you a better player if not only did you move better, but you could move better against greater resistance? And all of them say yes and say, guys, that's all I'm doing. All I'm doing is we will be very movement-based but I want you to move well. I want you to, be able to move with power. And I want you to be able to move at great speed. And then, you know, you start to talk a language that works. And it's not this arrogant, what do you mean, why? Because I said. And that just didn't work. It didn't work there. So you're, you're taking feedback from them and you're, um, you know, you're, you're, like you said, you, you, you know, people usually are willing to do something if they understand why. And then, and then you just have to build a relationship with that uh, player. Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's exactly right. And I, and as it, as a, when it comes to the, the actual skill set on the field, you know what, the big, some of the biggest differences were. Most of the players that we had at Everton had been playing soccer at such a young age and receiving a different level of coaching at such a young age. And the reality is, is the the skill level, there was just, there was a noticeable disparity. I think that was, you can't really get around that. I've had some great players 
in the, in the, with the teams in the U.S. that I've coached. Uh, but the level in the Premier League is what it is uh, because the best players in the world play in Europe. And, and it, was, it was evident. It was evident. I, I've seen that transformation with the national team as we start to generate more and more players who are not only playing in Europe, but they're playing in the Champions League. You start to see how the coaching itself, how the pressure of competing at really high levels that make players uncomfortable on a regular basis just create exponential growth. But what's happening in MLS now is as there's greater competition in MLS, the pressure is increasing. A very similar pressure is starting to build in MLS that I experienced in, in Europe. As that pressure builds in each game means more, like we said, to the fans, to the organizations, and to the players, the urgency of it all is going to create pressure and Pressure creates diamonds, and that's exactly what's taking place right now in, in MLS is the, the league is growing, and the pressure to win is far greater now than it was when I started in 2007. But I think the, you know, the other the big piece to this is Europe has promotion and relegation, and the consequences of being relegated in, in Europe are, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to be relegated, but it's also the benefit of hundreds of millions of dollars if you get promoted. And I think there's there's a different type of consequence to 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 losing in the Premier League. You know, drastic drops in form and a dip in results that run run themselves into a club that goes into now a lack of confidence. And now you're dealing with the slippery slope of the difficulty of, of turning a losing streak into a winning streak starts getting a team closer and closer to this rele relegation zones and in these standings. And as you get closer to that line, I've been there with Everton before where we had a slide and we're sitting in 18th, 19th position and the whole club tightens up. It's a very, very difficult time. And the pressure is incredible. And I was just in circumstances where coaches, you know, managers like David Moyes were, had, had been in those positions before and always let us out of them, always let us out of it. It was incredible. And, and But you could feel the pressure built through the entire club, from the maintenance people all the way to the chefs. Everybody felt it. And do you think that that pressure, and as you said, you know, the pressure creates diamonds, does it also, uh, it, uh, I'm thinking, does it also create a, a bit of arrogance for some of the players, you know, that they're they're looked at so highly and they're so almost like rock star status? Um is it, mm -hmm. and, and, and that's a, sometimes a difficult personality to deal with. Yeah, I, I do think that always, I, I think, but I've had, I've had uh, that challenge in every environment. I don't think it was unique to, to the Premier League. I, I think it, it tends to be more about, I think it's about two things that gets misinterpreted as arrogance. Uh, the first thing for me is that many times it's because what you're what you're dealing with in a lot of top athletes is that they're actually a creative. They're they're very very similar to uh, any to, you know to to great performers in the performing arts, and creatives many times will get misinterpreted as arrogant because um, as Scott Barry Kaufman says in, in his, you know, research on, on creatives, 
at times they slip into kind of fantasy worlds where, you know, they create a character for themselves. They create a world where they perform a certain way and they, they, they do perform experiments in these places in their mind. They go to this place where uh, it's a sandbox of, of sorts where I can experiment with being a different person. I can experiment with how this changes me and my ability to perform as I uh, imagine a fourth dimension in the world, as I mentioned, four dimensions of movement instead of three. Uh, there's this very, there's this creative place that a lot of people can't go. And that's why I think creatives are so unique and they can distance themselves from other people as they're in this world and people interpret it as them being arrogant and selfish. And it's not because then they can be viciously, viciously communal to where all of a sudden when they're engaged again, they're this incredibly competitive unified team member who uh, who will run through brick walls for anybody. It, it's a, so I think that's one piece of this that's get, that gets confused is some, some of these folks are not arrogant. They're not egotistical. They're just creatives. And, and sometimes it's their, their creative mind. That's not well understood. And then the other, the other one that I face is, is that the players get stuck in the dichotomy of one that, Ego is essential for success in pressurized environments, but it also functions in a way where if we don't understand how and when it creates positive benefits and how, when it creates negative benefits, which is a skill, then all of a sudden it can get misinterpreted. And again, I refer back to Barry Kaufman, who who is also an expert on ego. And what he says is, Ego should live on a volume dial, not on an on-off switch. And he's absolutely correct. Like what I found, what I found in the in the top players I've worked with around the world is that they are excellent at knowing when to turn up ego volume and when to turn it down. If it's down too low when it's time to perform, then the confidence that's necessary to be on that stage and still perform becomes difficult. But at the same time, in those moments where you have to hear, where you have to be connected, where you have to be communal, if that ego volume is too loud, you can't hear anybody. You can't receive the things you need to receive from the people around you to perform at a high level. So those are the things that I think that get confused in professional sport. And I hear it all the time. Uh, They make so much money that they're they, they they're disconnected from reality uh, you know all they care about is their dollar amount they don't care about the sport they just and it's it's not true for the most part it's not i feel like it's a it's a misunderstanding that's very very difficult to connect to and at times it's one or the other it's either you're dealing with a creative person who's very much uh, you know operates with a creative mind is just misunderstood or it's this athlete that's struggling with the balance that's needed between when ego volume needs to be high and when it needs to be, you know, low. And I think those are, you know, those are things that a lot of people on the outside haven't had the experience of being close to, and it's just something to be mindful of. Yeah, that's, that's well said. And what about like world cup teams? I mean, um, you know, my, my understanding of the soccer world is, is, um, 
less than other sports. So forgive me if I don't understand this exactly right. But a World, <laughs> no worries. A World Cup team is is more like um, it's like an All Star team, right? It's like uh, the best of the best, and so now you're dealing with a whole team of, let's say, creatives as opposed to maybe one or two or three on a team. You know what? I, I My opinion, Steve, is it kind of averages itself out in a very similar way. You know, every team you get piano players and you get piano movers. I really do feel that way. I, I, that's been my experience for 20 years, really. And you're, you're correct on the national team. Uh, in a sense, your analogy is fairly correct in that you know, it's really your 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 best players in the world that have an American passport. <laughs> that's a that's one way to word it. You know, the, the unique part of it is uh, in the club setting. If you want to upgrade your roster, you can you can look around the world, and um, you're only limited by your pocketbook in how you create your roster. Whereas with the national team environments, if you need to upgrade your roster. Uh, you've got what you got, you know, so now you need to coach and you need to find marginal gains to get better. And that was, that was where I think Greg was amazing. You know, Greg Berhalter was over time helped players get better. He either helped them himself through the selfless work he would do when they weren't with us he would review their own club games, not just the games they play with the national team, but the games they play with their clubs. And he and his coaching staff would have regular calls with, you know, the players in our player pool. And they would discuss not just national team games, but games they play with their clubs, what they could have done better, what they did really well. The things that, the things that, um, you know, fit well and coincided with the style of play that we have, but also the style of play that club has pointing things out that allowed them to continue to get better when they weren't with us. You know, he maximized the idea that I've got what I've got. And the first step I can take is try to make them better players. The second thing was the level of detail that he operated with and expected from his staff that led to us creating an elite high-performance environment for the players. If you improve the environment, the players will get better as well. So, his expectations were extremely high and the energy levels required to work with Greg Berhalter are in intense, but it's because he wants us to understand that we can have a direct effect on how the national team improves based on how we do our job and how that contributes to promoting the, the most elite high performance environment possible. He was excellent at that. So yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a difference in that we borrow players from their clubs to play our national team games, but we also have to work incredibly collaboratively with their high performance departments. I was going to say, because so I'm sure yeah. there's, there could be some concern when there's so much at stake and they're at such a high level that it's like, you know, don't be telling them something that, uh, you know, <laughs> you shouldn't be telling them this, you know, I want to control that, you know, so I'm sure you have to build relationships back on that because uh, if you, d if you ask somebody to do something on the uh, national team, that's different than what they've been doing. Um, you know, that's uh, that, that could be a, uh, a concern for the for the club uh, leadership. Yeah, it requires. I think that was probably the biggest difference in my roles from club to country was, yeah, you know, the club level you still had to have incredible relational skills, but you know you were day to day responsible for their athletic development. 
with the national team, you don't have them enough. So I would say that the ability to, to collaborate and the ability to bring people together, the ability to communicate and create the structure to support high performance rather than drive it was a key skill set that I needed to develop quickly, that I, I needed to shift my mindset really, really quickly. And I had some tremendous people working with me who, you know, were able, you know, we were able to quite quickly understand what our true role is going to be within the national team environment. And as long as we consistently communicated that we were very player centric, that yes, we have an agenda. Yes, you guys have an agenda, but nothing is more important than the player. As soon as we could say it, but then back it up with our actions and our behaviors, you know, the high performance departments at each club started to trust us pretty quickly. Uh, and we were able to leverage that at a high level that that really resulted in an incredible experience at the World Cup. That was a very collaborative experience. You know, the the success we had at the World Cup from a performance perspective was a global team effort to the point where I, I, I've done a couple of keynotes now this year, and that was the title of the keynote was collaboration, how we built a global network of high-performance allies. That's really what we did over the four years was understand you know the players just as well, if not better than we do, because you have them every day. So we're going to listen, but we're also going to support by providing information from when we have the players and making sure that all the information that's needed is available to both environments to maximize the player's experience regardless of where they are. And we were able to do that through technology. We were able to do that through just old school phone calls, face-to-face -face Zoom calls, like just staying connected. And at the end of the day, we were able to create something pretty unique and special. And, you know, each club felt like, you know, they could feel how they how they directly or indirectly influenced the, the success we had at the World Cup. And, and what do you think at that high level uh, with these athletes? Uh, what is more important? Is it the physical training or is it the mental training? I, I, I'm not sure if each one necessarily recognizes um, which area they lack most. Sometimes they need help in seeing how placing more emphasis in one area than the other um, is going to help them be a better player. Sometimes they need that assistance. We had a really young team. So that's the youngest U.S. team to ever compete in a World Cup. And in Qatar, we were the second youngest team at the World Cup, but only by months. It was a very, very young team. And I think we took a lot of time uh, investing in young players and trying to create an understanding of why a professional routine is so important. And that's a big part of it. It's not just uh, the physical slash mental side of it. It's that holistically to perform at a high level in sport, to perform at a high level in any environment, whether it's corporate, the performing arts, whether it's sport, if you don't have a routine and a process, it becomes very difficult to create consistency. And that's what you're really trying to create in sport for sure is can I put a process in place so that each player has a routine? Because what's most important is 
listen, when things aren't going well for me as a player and I'm out of form, I need to know the anchors that I can fall back on. You know, let me get this back to foundational levels and see where I went wrong here. Where did I, where did I veer off the path? Well, if you don't have the foundational anchors, then you're not falling back on anything predictable. And I think that's the really important piece as it relates to high performance in general, regardless of the environment. Working with executive coaching clients now, regardless of whether it's corporate or not, a lot of times a lot of this comes back to when they're dealing with how do I manage people, and a lot of it's because it might be a circumstance that reflects conflict or having to deal with conflict sometimes i hate like what what are the basic values that should be aligning this group right it's very similar with routine what are my anchors what are the things that i can fall back on that give me a very predictable starting point for how to consistently perform at a high level and and that's where a lot of these buckets end up being created whether it's physical whether it's mental it's a sliding scale for players based on where they are in their careers. And, uh, you know, I've had the, the benefit of now seeing many players that I had now coaching as head coaches, and I was able to watch them develop over time and see how they actually saw their needs shift on that sliding scale based on where they were in their career. And some of them early in their career just didn't understand how mental consistency created performance consistency. And they, it was only later in life, later in their careers, where they said, I wish I would have focused on this more. But then I've heard just as many players get to the end of their career and say, I wish I would have had a physical routine earlier in my career. So I think it comes down to the individual snowflake nature of each player, of each yeah. personality. Yeah. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. It, yeah, no, it's it's not. Uh, I've I've met some extremely young players that were had an incredible mental stability, um, and then I've met some older players that you know that physically just they were so gifted that that they you know even at older ages playing into their upper thirties, early forties, they just they physically had had the tools, you know, and and it wasn't it wasn't the physical. Their biggest needs weren't physical at all. So now you've you're, you said it earlier, but you're working with some business executives executives as well in a, in a coaching relationship. So tell us a little bit about that and and why venture into that area um, with all this uh, vast experience you have of uh, uh, in the sports performance world. You know the the main thing that I started to to recognize was that my purpose was about you know, providing value. I just like serving. And I, that's why I think in the end, as I look back on my career, that's why I enjoyed being in high performance as a physical therapist, performance coach, high performance director. Um, you know, you've experienced as a physical therapist, Steve, we're servants. That's what we do. And I, and whether it was a love of movement early in my life that, that led me to physical therapy or whether it was a some subconscious understanding that I, I like serving either way. Steve, in anticipation of our discussion today, is there anything that uh, I haven't asked you or we haven't discussed that you want to be sure you get in the program today? Yeah, I would say that it, the what, what I've 
come to understand now just dealing with elite sport and now having the opportunity to work in, in you know organizations and industries outside elite sport is that high performers are everywhere i think that's that's a key ingredient to a mindset for me when i when i enter into a relationship with a client there is there are very similar needs there's very similar challenges in every single one of these environments there's expectations to be met those expectations create pressure and it's about the way in which we create the tools and processes for ourselves that end up culminating into professional routines that give us the ability to meet the expectations and that's that's what's missing i think at times when we're in environments and either we're leading people that might not be hitting the mark or when we're on the outside looking in and we're receiving the product or the consumer and it's just not meeting our expectations as a consumer. A lot of times it comes down to the very simple fact that if we study what makes high performers successful, then we can kind of reverse engineer that into tools that can be used by anybody not just individually so that we can be a better team member and teammate, but also organizationally so that we can become better leaders and we can become better environments. I think that's a key piece in, in kind of bringing this to a close is that uh, elite sport doesn't make, doesn't make anyone special. Elite sport is just more recognizable, but, as a musician, as a coach, uh, you know, as an athlete myself, what I recognize is that it's all you need is opportunity to be a high performer. That's it. Yeah. And, and, and how, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, just... And, and just how we deal with that opportunity is really about whether or not we actually execute and whether we actually, you know, hit marks that would be recognized as high performance, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and, and I did want to bring up that, uh, from what I hear, you're a hell of a drummer too. So um, uh, <laughs> you got a band and you drum, and uh, that, that's awesome. So uh, uh, you know, it's 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 uh, high performance, as you just mentioned, and other things that uh, um, you know keep us all going for sure. So at this point in the interview, Steve, I always ask my guests the same common question, and that question is in relation to leadership. What is a pearl of wisdom you could leave us with today? Uh, I would say that I think the the ability to create environments where people are willing to take risk is paramount. That's how you know if you've created a great environment as a leader. Risk in and of itself is something you can look at two different ways. I can either always approach it with a mindset of what I have to lose, or I can approach it with a mindset of what I have to gain. Individuals in trusting safe environments will always look at risk as something as I have to gain. Individuals in environments where they just don't have trust and they don't feel safe will always be viewing it through the lens of what I have to lose. And so that would be my pearl, is risk is key. If you have an environment and what you're seeing around you is a bunch of people willing to take calculated risk, then you've done a great job of creating a safe and trusting environment. And that's 
paramount for me. Trust, safety, belonging. You're going to see people that are willing to take risks for the organization. Now that's that's amazing. Well, Steve, thank you so much for uh, taking your time today to talk with us. It just sounds like you've had an amazing career. Uh, sounds like you still got a lot of gas in the tank. So I'm sure there's there's more to come. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, both in your uh, in your new uh, venture with uh, not only uh, athletes but also uh, business executives and uh, playing in the band. So um, you know maybe uh, maybe that's a, that's a, that's another career uh, just waiting to to pop out as well, huh? <laughs> We'll see. We'll okay. see, Steve. Fingers well, crossed. Okay. Well, thanks so much. Uh, take care. Have a good rest of your day, and um, we'll maybe uh, meet down the road somewhere. Yeah, likewise, Steve. Thank you, man. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.